How exciting. Uh, we're back with uh, another B-Side podcast. Today I have um, my, my university professor for um, neurobiology, biopsychology, I guess would be the first name. But before we get into it, I want to do a land acknowledgement because we are on the unceded territory of the uh, Musqueam, the, the Tsleil-Waututh, and the Squamish First Nation. Welcome. Welcome, Evan. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> how's it going? Good. Yeah, it's going quite well. Um, you know, what did I just say about that? Um, I don't know. Just, yeah, things are good. Things are good. You're just wrapping up your, your uh, PhD dissertation, right? That's right. Yeah, we were chatting about that just before uh, recording. Yes, so that's part of it. I'm, I'm finished a draft of my dissertation now. That's a good feeling. Um... Yeah, there's been studies done on PhD students when they reach the end of their uh, dissertation, like usually in the months leading up to their defense, cortisol levels just start slowly but surely rising to chronically high levels. And I don't know, I'm not testing mine, but I don't feel it. I'm, I'm feeling like it's a time for like shedding the stress that I've accumulated this, uh, these, these many years working on it. Yeah. Yeah, how long has it been? Too long. <laughs> Way too long. Um, yeah, when did I start this? Like, uh, end of 2014. It's a good nine years working on this. So, um, it's very, that's an unusually high number. Um, usually they take, well, a minimum four. Typically is like six, I'd say. We work with saliva, though, and COVID really knocked us out uh, as a lab, so that was a difficult thing to get through. Also, as you know, you were going to ask me some questions, I, I believe, about a stroke that I also had a few years ago, so that kind of knocked me out for a little while, too. So, so mine was unusually long, but um, but things take as long as they take. Of course. Yeah. And, I, and I mean, you're getting there. I'm there. You are? Yeah, yeah. Just one step away, which is super exciting. Yeah, yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. Preemptively. Thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> um, could you, could you introduce yourself? I'd imagine sure. uh, most of the people watching this probably don't know who you are, so if you could give me a little bit of background on like what you've studied, what you're interested in, and um, uh, what you're studying at. Yeah, sure. So, so my name is Evan Kaldick. I'm um, a PhD student, just wrapping up that, at, uh, in the Behavioral Endocrinology Lab at Simon Fraser. Um, so we, what we do is we study mostly steroid hormones. So the relationship between hormones and behavior in general and steroids we have found are especially stable and easy to measure. Um, they're not especially interesting compared to other hormones that, that you know, um, have that sort of reciprocal relationship with mind and behavior. But they're easy, much easier to, to measure. Like I tried, for example, a, a meditation study a few years ago, um, looking at the effects of a, a compassion meditation um, called Meta on oxytocin levels. I wanted to see if uh, this kind of meditation would increase people's oxytocin hormone involved in social bonding. It seems like it actually might be involved in tribalism as well. But uh, um, Social bonding in general, like mother-infant bonding, um, uh, 
uh, mate pair bonding and and friendships and things like that. So uh, we were, I was looking at, I wanted to see if it rose in response to this compassion meditation. Um, we measure hormones through saliva. And it's a big molecule, oxytocin, and it breaks down quite quickly in saliva. So it's very unstable and very difficult to measure. So it was a good study, but the hormone data was just too noisy, unfortunately. So we so instead, we look, uh, most of my studies are on testosterone, uh, cortisol, which is a stress response hormone, and estradiol. I, I recently added estradiol um, mostly as a kind of ad hoc expedient to experiments I was running. Um, but it turned out to be the star player in my dissertation. So I'm very happy, very like, very thankful that um, that, that worked out. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Do you have a lot of, um, uh, maybe that's not the right question to ask. I was just wondering uh, your, your take on meditation, because clearly you have an amount of interest in it. Uh, meta is also called like love and kindness meditation. Yeah, love and kindness meditation. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what's what's your background in it? What what got you started on the idea of meditation and, and uh, why have you found it useful? Oh yeah, yeah, I found it very personally useful. Um, I probably started meditating in twenty fifteen ish around there. Um, Hard to remember exactly the moment that got me interested in it, but uh, but I do remember that it was Jack Cornfield uh, who was uh, the catalyst, I guess. Um, they first got me meditating. I used to listen to his guided meditations um, of all sorts. He's got a lot of good material out there. Uh, and I just found it very helpful for overall stability, like... Uh, mental, physical stability, um, working with emotions. So one of the, one of the reasons why I feel comfortable speaking, um, publicly giving lectures as, as an instructor at university, um, as someone who used to, like when I was your age, I used to tremble in front of, uh, in, in front of crowds could not speak, voice would crack and just shake. I would just shake, right? And meditation was uh, a large part, not, not exclusively, but a large part of helping that out. So sitting with um, the thoughts and the emotions, the fear and so on, the intimidation, just sitting with it and just increasingly getting more and more comfortable with it um, just kind of helps it dissolve away. And um, yeah, it's it's a it's a good practice. So I ended up um, I ended up ju uh, just recently finishing a two-year meditation teacher training program um, under Jack Cornfield and Tara Brock. Yeah, so that was my COVID project. Really? Yeah. So, so you're a certified meditation teacher as well? Yes, I'm, I'm now a certified meditation instructor. Yeah, yeah. So. Really? Yes. Yeah. What What do you even learn to become, or what What do you need to learn to become a meditation instructor? Uh, that's okay. Good question. I honestly don't feel much more qualified after the program as I uh, did beforehand. Um, but I, I almost certainly am. Uh, I had to go through two practicums, for example. I had to run um, 
two introductory courses on meditation. One of them I did at, at SFU, actually. I uh, recruited mostly a bunch of uh, students and um, just ran several sessions just introducing the different forms of meditation, um, focusing on the breath, body meditations, body scan, uh, meditation of emotion, meditation of thought, and then, and then metta. Um, and then I did one that was sort of an all-day retreat out, um, just taking some friends out to Pacific Spirit, and we just moved around the park and just meditated in the woods all day. And it was quite, yeah, it was quite a good time. Um, but um, but otherwise, it's 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 a two-year program, so there's quite a lot of material to go through. Um, yeah, I could maybe post a, a link to the program if you're interested in going through that uh, um, curriculum. Yeah, seeing what that's like. Yeah, I, I have found meditation personally to be quite helpful, um, though I, I don't practice it regularly. Sure. Uh, I used to, uh, religiously, and mm -hmm. uh, definitely helped in some turmoil times. Mm -hmm. uh, I should do that again, to be honest. Yeah, it comes and goes. I, <laughs> I, um, I you know, I, I always like a phrase I had heard early on, and I forget who it's by, it might have been Ram Dass, um, who said, you know, if, it might have been Jack Cornfield. So it's something to the effect of, you know, if you find that you, day after day, have to force yourself to meditate, just take a couple weeks off, like, at least. Take, take some time off. And, because um, uh, it's not a chore. It's, it's something that is, um, yeah, it's just, it's just sitting with yourself. It's just sitting quietly, right? And, yeah. I, I, I would, uh, I, I think there's a lot of value in it. From, from my understanding, and I would love to get some insight from you on this, a lot of the benefit from it, at least from like a, a, a neurology standpoint, would be the calming of the default mode network, mm -hmm. trying to kind of break out of the perpetual state that your mind is in a little bit and mm -hmm. experience your life more. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's true. I mean, I, I really can't go too much more into it than you've described. It's um, like, a, like bringing up the default mode network, that, that right there, you've got it. It's, um, it tends to, with time, the practice decreases functional uh, activity in the default mode network, and I guess I should describe what the default yeah, mode network is, right? Yeah, yeah. So uh, the default mode network in the brain is a constellation, it's a network, a, a set of structures that are especially active and especially coordinated in their activity when we aren't doing anything in particular, when we're not engaged in some active task uh, that requires our attention. So when you are daydreaming, mind wandering, ruminating, um, any of these things where, you know, your, your mind just starts drifting. Um, and that last one, rumination, can be... Um, could be a, itself a catalyst into some negative self-talk and spirals that uh, that are traps, traps of the mind, right? And um, meditation is a nice salve for that. It's a good practice that it simply directs us to use active attention um, on something simple to start off with, like your breath. Just just keep paying attention to it. Um, and for beginners, of course, then beginners will notice, I remember, um, and still occasionally, 
have it happen where my mind instantly starts wandering away from the breath. Trying to pay attention to it for more than 10 seconds is often quite difficult when you start out meditating. Um, but it's a practice. Right? It's a practice like anything. It gets uh, easier and easier. And as the practice continues, it eventually just becomes permanent. It, you just hone your attention uh, so that the mind doesn't really go into that those ruminating states uh, as much, at least as much anymore. Yeah, I, at least in my personal experience, I would certainly agree with that. Um, I, I got into meditation through John Kabat-Zinn. Okay, yeah. And um, his, his whole mindfulness-based stress reduction, um, at least from what he claims in his books, you know, uh, it's a six-month program. For people who don't know, uh, if I can remember correctly, it was like a six-month program for people in chronic pain. Mm. And they would do a meditation uh, every day or twice a day for six months, and then after that, they had like significantly reduced their, not necessarily their pain, but their ability, or significantly improved their ability to deal with their pain. Mm -hmm. And um, I, don't know, I thought that was really compelling. And after six months, they stopped doing it. They still had benefits, which I thought was quite interesting. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I don't know. I feel like that's kind of where I'm at, <laughs> to be honest. It's but, a good practice. Yeah, it's great. I, um, I would recommend it. And I think there's a lot to be said for mindfulness practice that isn't meditation. Mm -hmm. Have you found anything kind of in that genre that's not necessarily like a sitting down and meditating, but a mindful practice that helps you? Well, yeah, that's, that's, that's an interesting question. Um, where my mind goes with it at first is this distinction between a formal and informal practice. So formal practice is, you know, sitting quietly, um, often eyes closed. Uh, you can do it eyes open. But um, just having that either focused attention on a single point or sort of an open awareness where you give everything equal amount of attention. Um, so sort of hyper-biasing or, or unbiasing attention in a sense. Um, that's formal practice, but informal practice is sort of waking up to automatic response or reactivity patterns and behavior that we have at any given time um, during, the, during the day. So we'll notice these informal practice, um, where the mind tends to drift, what emotions are especially labile that come up more frequently than others, what body parts uh, the sensations are associated with. Um, and so you'll notice those and without reacting to them uh, in formal practice, they tend to unfold in a, in a new and uh, well, just often a different way. Um, that can help us make progress on thought loops or emotion loops that, that we get stuck in. And um, I'd say, yeah, informal practice, the, the more you do a formal practice, the easier it is to just notice these things in daily life and in social interactions, driving, um, there's really bad traffic on the way here. Um, yeah. Uh, no, no, that's a that's a that's a good answer. It's 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 neat to practice something formally and then have it actually pay off when you're just living your life. You feel like, oh, I'm stuck in a loop, and, and you can realize that faster or mm -hmm. kind of dissipate it by focusing on other things, even if it's still happening. Yeah, the point of it is really, at least the point of it for me, is to 
um, just increase the choices available. Um, so we have to live some life, we make choices, but the range of options available at any given moment, how to respond, um, just helps us slow down a little bit and see that we often have more options than we normally think we do. Yeah, it's, it's kind of playing on that control piece. Mm -hmm. um, I, I just listened to uh, another two podcasts Evan did on a podcast called Probably Not Lupus, which looks great. I hadn't heard of it until I listened to it. Um, but I can, I can put a link down below or something if you want to find it. But yeah, you mentioned in, in your recovery, which I'm sure we'll touch on later, but a feeling of control is, is kind of illusory, but also very necessary to feel well. Um, yeah, yeah, well, that, the, the two sides of that are, um, yeah, I, 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 I'm not one that um, believes in the, what I think is sort of a naive view of free will, for example, right? I, I don't, there's nothing about the human mind our thoughts, our behavior that violates the laws of physics, right? We are unfolding in a way, like we are, our, our minds are our brains as, as far as neuroscientists are concerned. And, um, and so in that sense, whatever's gonna happen is gonna happen. Um, but psychologically, it's very important to our, again, physical and mental well-being to feel like we have agency and the sense that our the outcomes of our lives are determined by us and not um, exclusively the world around us by other people and, and the environment yeah. yeah it's quite a helpless feeling to feel like you can't change your outcome in life mm -hmm. um, so yeah that's a good way to do it meditation it's mm -hmm. good I don't know <laughs> um, I'm, I'm quite curious about the research you've been doing on um, hormones um, I, 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 I did a bit of online stalking with you <laughs> to, try, <laughs> to, to try and come up with questions and idea. And, and I, I read the start of your, um, of your journal article about serum testosterone in, in people looking at different emotions and faces. Oh, yeah. And That's so, an old one, yeah. Yeah, I couldn't find anything else, though. Maybe I didn't look No, yeah, I, I tend to, I'm a, I'm a different kind of, uh, grad student in that sense. I, um. I, I'm, I don't publish much, um, at least not yet. I, I might, I'm, I'm certainly going to publish the results of my dissertation. That was an old study, I think that was in 2014. That goes back almost a decade. Um, yeah, so I, well, I, I can speak to that a little bit. I, I would say it's, uh, it's, it might be of interest because um, some people um, approach grad school with ideas, and it might be helpful to, to give them a sense of what it's like on the inside. Um, yeah, that would be interesting. Absolutely. Sure. So, um, there, w when I got to grad school, I'm, I've always been of the mindset to simply learn. I just want to know how the mind works. Um, that's all I've really cared about since my undergrad. In fact, I did two undergrads, uh, and I'll go, I can go into that story a little bit later. But um, uh, when I approach grad school, I, my primary concern, my primary interest is just figuring out how the mind works. Um, and actually my biggest blind spot was 
the hypothalamus uh, when it came to the brain at that point. And so I, I had, didn't really take much of an interest in it when I was doing my behavioral neuroscience undergrad. And, um, and so just the way I am, I guess, I just thought, um, well, if this is my biggest blind spot, why not do my, uh, my master's and PhD in endocrinology and then just fill that blind spot. Um, and I'm glad I did. But when I got to grad school, and, um, and I will say it's, uh, it's a good time. Grad school is wonderful. Uh, it, it's something I definitely can't recommend to anyone thinking about it. Um, but there was also a phenomenon that I encountered that I, I wasn't, I'd heard about, but I wasn't really familiar with. And the phenomenon is called publish or perish. And uh, so the idea here is you just, you need to pump out published, peer-reviewed academic papers constantly to keep up, just to compete with everyone else doing the same thing. Um, or you're not going to have a career. You're going to just, uh, you're, you're going to disappear from people's awareness. And, um, and as you see, um, I've mostly, I, I chose Parrish uh, very actively, very consciously chose Parrish. Um, because I saw what it was doing to a lot of, well, a few reasons. One of them was I saw what it was doing to a lot of researchers. Um, it's a very stressful thing to at the edge of relevance and to constantly have the incentive to do literally anything to publish just to have publications as fast as many as you can as fast as you can so that's not um i didn't see that as a really healthy dynamic in academia i thought this like if we're just interested in reality in the truth of how how the, the brain is working i think we should securing uh, the livelihood of people who care deeply about this so that they can pursue it in the way that they feel like rather than um, yeah rather rather than with this um, I guess perverse incentive to just do as much as possible yeah. Yeah. so uh, so I, I actively decided I'm going to just stick with my original goal I'm going to do this for myself, and I, I'm quite glad I did. I mean, I also, uh, in psychology, know that no matter what I chose, uh, I would have rationalized it and, and felt good about it. Um, but I, this, this is one of them. I feel quite good about it because I do feel that by doing that, I allowed myself the space uh, to just explore many sides of the mind at once. I'm, I would call myself more of a, a generalist when it comes to um, uh, thinking about and understanding how the, the human brain works uh, in now a sea of hyper-specialists, people that are really siloed into a very, very specific um, area of expertise. So as people go on in academia, they tend to know more and more about less and less is the, the pattern, right? And I, I try to take a middle road there, trying to... So I'm not especially hyper-specialized, but I feel like I've got a, um, a decent, broad perspective on it. Uh, pretty high detail because I've been spending so much time. I mean, it's been 
over a decade. So, right. yeah. Um, what, what have you? Well, actually, I had two questions about this. I should ask the one I thought of first. First, um, I'm kind of curious about the logistics of grad school. So once you graduate, you get a little degree or whatever, and um, what do you even do? It's more classes and self-directed research. And that's kind of the impression I got. So you're asking after you graduate from your undergrad or after you graduate from uh, PhD? Uh, your undergrad. Ah, okay, yeah, yeah. So if you're going to grad school, um, and if you want to know how, it, it, it really depends on the type of degree you're going for. Um, now in psychology, we have two main branches. Or the, the first division, I would, I would say, is between clinical, that's the majority of where the majority of students go to, and experimental. I've always found this strange. Um, I think maybe one day it'll be reevaluated. Um, it, it, it's always struck me as like putting uh, a med school and a biology department under the same umbrella, um, which th there is some sense to doing that, but um, you know, there, there's also quite a distinction between pure research on the one hand, um, only really caring about understanding the, what the mind is versus um, the therapeutic, the clinical, the medical side of it, right? Treating mental illness, um, improving mental health in general. And um, they, they definitely, both of those inform each other, um, just as biology and, uh, and medicine inform each other, but they're not the same thing. But, uh, but yeah, anyway, that's not answering your question. Um, so in psychology, those are the two, big, two divisions, primary divisions. So you've got clinical, then you've got research. In our department, we've got five research areas. It kind of varies department to department uh, on emphasis and specialization. The one that I'm in is the area is called Cogneuro, Cognitive Neuroscience. Um, we have, yeah, we've got four other ones. It's developmental, social, forensic, and um, HQT. Q is quantitative, the T is theory. I've lost track of what the H is. Uh, That's okay. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, um, so when you go into any of those five, um, I can speak much more to, uh, you do, in, in Canada actually it's mostly you start with a master's and then move on to a PhD. In the, in the US it's different, you go right into a PhD. Um, so yeah, you take a couple more classes. Um, few more classes. You would, in your master's, you'd take four. Uh, you need to do high-level stats. And um, a course in your specialization, and then sort of a breadth course. And then your research, um, and, a, and a master's thesis. And is there anything else you have to do? A master's? I don't think so. Masters are usually relatively short. Your PhD is bigger. You have to do another six classes, I think, which can be spread out over however many years you want. Um, and through what are called uh, comprehensive exams, that varies from program to program. Um, and those now typically are negotiated with your com uh, supervisory committee, your, your primary supervisor. In my case, it's uh, Neil Watson. Behavior under chronology, and um, and you just decide what constitutes an exam. These, I mean, back in the day, these used to be uh, like oral exams on, on 
very technically driven uh, in most departments, like if you went back 100 years ago or so. Um, but today it can be, there's a lot of variety to it. So you can write a review paper in your area. Um, one that I did, uh, so, so I'm, I, I, in fact, I actually have a review paper that's um, going to be published uh, in endocrinology, behavior endocrinology. And um, I did two courses for my other two. So one of them was an online version of the course that you took with me last semester um, that uh, was offered for a few years. And then after COVID, they, they, uh, I got rid of it. Um, and then uh, the last one is a, another course that I am in the process of designing. I'm just finishing this one up, actually on uh, mindfulness meditation for cognitive neuroscientists. I'm trying to, um, I'm trying to enhance both of these practices. So I want to bring, I want to bring the best neuroscience to the mindfulness community and I want to bring mindfulness to the cognitive neuroscientists. Yeah. yeah. That's so cool. Thank you. Yeah. No way. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, then of course there's a dissertation. So you have to do, you have to actually have to, you know, do some studies and write them up. Yeah. Um, well, that's so neat. That sounds like an awesome course. Mm -hmm. Thanks. Yeah. I, I would love to take that one day. Well, uh, I could offer it as early as the summer. So if that's the case, I'll invite you. Yeah. Please do. That would be awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah. What, what do you think neuroscientists need to know about meditation? Mm -hmm. That's a, that's, it's a big question. It, yeah. It's, uh, I'll, 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 get, I'll do my best with it. I mean, I think a lot, but um, there is there's been for the last um, hundred and thirty or so years uh, a an attitude in all of science, but psychology especially, that um, that introspection is not uh, allowed. In uh, to to as a means to understand the mind because we fool ourselves and each other all the time. Um, we have all sorts of cognitive biases, distortions, and um, and it's uh, it's it's just not a reliable, objective means of collecting information. Um, and so no one does it anymore. Uh, they actually treat it as something that isn't um, even worth doing for the most part um, because of that. There's, there's almost a built-in aversion to it. So I, I uh, think there's actually quite a good reason. I, I agree with the fact that introspection can't be allowed uh, into objective psychological science um, for the same traditional reasons. You know, it's, it's unverifiable, it's unreliable. Unless we start developing techniques uh, to find sort of neural correlates of, of uh, verbal reports of introspection, then um, then we're stuck with just trusting people, and um, that's, that's not something you can you can really do. Yeah. Damn. Right. Yeah. So, but but I think it's still useful for um, scientists of the mind to spend time. With their with their own mind, just um, yeah, exploring it a little bit, just seeing 
its range. And so that's what I would say is the uh, one of the main benefits of mindfulness to cognitive neuroscientists is um, expanding the mind so that you have more to think about. Okay, and so the course you're designing, is it more of a course on the, the biology and the technical aspects of meditation, or is it more a practical course to get people and students thinking about meditation in a new way? I would say it's sort of, sort of a mix. It's um, what it's, a, it's sort of a traditional meditation course with um, like an introductory talk at the beginning of each session, followed by a guided meditation and then a Q and A. The only, the main difference with this one will be that the talks ahead of time will be framing the particular meditation in. A neuroscientific context. So, for example, um, I was just writing one the other day on anchoring our mind to the breath. So, because this is a, a made, the initial anchor for most people when they start mindfulness meditation, it's just um, closing your eyes, sitting silently, and just focusing on the sensations of the breath. And so, the introduction to that is I, I give a minimal uh, introduction to it in terms of the technique and spend more of the time describing polyvagal theory, which is contextualizing the breath and why we use the breath um, in terms of where it lies between the mind and body and the nervous system, right? So, so as an example, um, the breath is controlled uh, just like uh, most of our other internal organs by the autonomic nervous system. Um, but it's the only part of the autonomic nervous system that we have direct frontal lobe. So the primary motor cortex has a direct line uh, down to a region called the uh, part of the vagal complex in the brainstem called the nucleus ambiguous that um, helps regulate uh, breathing rate. It's the only one that you can control volitionally, right? You, you will breathe when you're asleep. Your um, brainstem is going to keep that going automatically. But at any moment when you're conscious, you could decide to just start breathing really rapidly or slow down your breath. Right? And you can't do this to your heart. You can't do it to your liver or your, you know, your pancreas. It's just the breath. So it carries that, um, that, that special place between the unconscious part of our nervous system and the conscious part. Yeah, um, just real quick, would you mind describing the autonomic nervous system for people who might not know? Yeah, sure, sure. So the autonomic nervous system is a part of the peripheral nervous system. Um, the nervous system uh, itself is divided into central, just brain, spinal cord, peripheral, everything else. A few divisions of it. One of them is the autonomic nervous system. Uh, so if it's peripheral, it means you just have nerves um, outside of the uh, spinal cord and brain. That's it. If, if, if there's nerves outside of those, you're in the peripheral nervous system. So um, that includes the cranial nerves as well, and um, which are really is just an extension of all the peripheral nerves coming out of the spinal cord, but up into the um, uh, up into the brainstem, mostly. And uh, the autonomic nervous system is a division that is regulating uh, the overall activation, like activity level, of, the, uh, of your internal organs. Uh, 
skin as well, so external organ as well. But um, yeah, so there's two divisions of that, sympathetic and parasympathetic. And the simplest way to understand it is a sympathetic division, very coordinated system that uh, tends to go into activation state when, uh, when you need to be aroused for some sort of threat or major opportunity um, uh, in, in your life that needs to be dealt with immediately. Um, and the parasympathetic one, this essentially works in the other direction, calms you down. So, and we're always in some kind of balance between these two. There, there's a complex choreography going on between the two of them with all your organs. Uh, but yeah, I would say that those are the broad strokes. Hopefully that was. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I think I get it. So, okay. so the parasympathetic calms you down. Sympathetic. Yes. Amps you up. Yes. Yeah, amps in the exactly. simplest terms. Simplest terms. Exactly. <laughs> um, yeah. So, sorry, I I lost track of what happened before that. Um, Talking about, sorry, do you remember? Yeah, uh, so we were going, to, we were talking about the course that I was uh, working on, right? And polyvagal yeah, yeah, theory. Yeah. yeah. So, so the vagus is the source. It's in the brainstem, and it's it's the source of most of the parasympathetic nervous system. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. So most of it comes right from the from the uh, vagal complex, and the vagus nerve is the um, is, is the majority, it's like 75% of the parasympathetic nervous system. Yeah. Oh, that makes sense, because parasympathetic is close to sympathetic, so that'd be near the neck area, right? Sympathetic actually is um, generated down the, the length of the spinal cord. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so, um, and, and the parasympathetic one, as I said, starts in the, in the vagal complex, uh, mostly, and then some other cranial nerves as well. Um, but they, most of them, the, these fibers then have synapse, they, they connect to um, other bundles or groups of neurons, clusters of neurons called ganglia in the body. So then those ganglia then uh, go and connect to organs of the body. And so yeah, there's, there's a lot of these, and again, they all just, their, their combined activity is sort of regulating our, um, yeah, our heart rate, our breathing rate, um, general activity of our digestive tract, etc. Okay, so... From my understanding of it, it would be the, the benefit of breathing is that it allows you to kind of control your your autonomic nervous system in a way that you can't with any other source through breathing faster or slower. It's the one, yeah, so so the, the way I'm going to be framing this when I start delivering these um, uh, sessions is that, yeah, because it's the one that we can regulate consciously, um, it's the place where we can essentially, um, like if, if you think of the conscious mind as the rider on the, the horse, that's the unconscious mind, right? It's, um, this, is, this is the interface. Um, this is at least one of the major interfaces uh, that, that we can use to, uh, to start, you know, well, that we, all, that we always are in relationship with, right? We have developed patterns uh, over the course of our lifetime of how the two relate to each other. But it's also the place that you can notice those patterns and start changing them. And by, by doing that, you can, through the breath, start regulating your heart rate. We know heart rate variability is associated with um, a lot of um, well-known health outcomes as well, right? People tend to 
Um, generally show lower heart rate variability when they're um, physiologically or, or uh, more often in uh, uh, states of poor mental health. Right? So that variability goes down. If, it's, if the variability goes up, it tends to be, you, you tend to be able to respond more robustly to the world. Right? And, um, and again, if you have that wider range physiologically and you're controlling it consciously a little bit better, that's, um, as you were saying before, that's the sense of control. That's control over your body and over your life. Cool. Um, <laughs> I, I want to steer back to the... Um, yeah, please do. No, no. Uh, uh, I'm all over the place. If you haven't noticed, I don't actually have <laughs> most of the questions prepared. Yeah. Uh, so we're just kind of winging it a little bit. Um, but yeah, so I, w- I would love to swing this back to the endocrinology portion. Mm. I was rather curious as to what insights you've gained about how hormones affect the way that we behave. Mm -hmm. Are there, are there any ones that really shocked you to learn about or anything that you think was really practical and and have you been able to implement in your life? Mm. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, that's a good one. Have I, I I don't know about the latter. I'll have to think about that one, actually incorporating them into my life. Um, I'm reminded actually of an interview with Daniel Kahneman. I, I saw once where, Someone asked him, he, he's responsible for characterizing a lot of cognitive biases that we have, right? And someone asked him, uh, are, are, do, you, do you think you're less biased because you know about the, these? And he's just, no, <laughs> no not, not at all. Um, you can identify them in the moment, um, but you, you don't get rid of them by being aware of them, right? Yeah. Um, but... <sighs> There's, uh, there's always there's some interesting stuff I learned um, when I started digging into that literature when I first, uh, as I said, started, started to fill that blind spot in my understanding of the brain. Um, one was, um, well, I'll, I'll start with testosterone because that's that's the one I was curious, most curious about uh, initially. Um, Testosterone is often considered to be, uh, like, like commonly, to be a hormone that promotes aggression, right? So, um, so violence um, and domination and, and aggression and violence, yeah. yeah. Um, and it seems that that's not the fundamental, the, the underlying or foundational role that it plays in our, um, in our behavior. It seems that what it's doing is promoting social status-seeking behaviors. And when you do that, there's many ways of doing that depending on the species, depending on the context. And in most species that have a relatively small behavioral repertoire, it often expresses itself as, as dominance and aggression. Um, that's an easy go-to if you want to aim really immediately for the very near future in your immediate sphere of influence increase your um, your social status then aggression and dominance uh, can do it certainly uh, but it, for complex social species um, and humans being probably the most I mean certainly the most um, complex in that case um, there's many other ways of approaching social status uh, and it's uh, aggression and dominance can often work in the opposite direction right 
Um, and yeah, I mean, in, in general, that's not, you, you, you kind of hope that we're working in general towards making that more and more the case. Um, but yeah, that's, that's, that was an interesting thing to learn. Um, another one was, again, being such a social species, um, we see that with testosterone, for example, um, competition is a major factor that testosterone is sensitive to, so winning and losing competitions. Um, when your testosterone is rising or high, then it tends to incline you to want to compete a little bit more. Um, and less if it's uh, on its way down or low. Um, and then when you win a competition, regardless of what state it's in, it tends to start going up. And when you lose, it tends to start going down. And that's true of competitors. Um, but one, the one that really shouldn't have surprised me, I guess, in retrospect, but I, I thought was really interesting was um, it does so vicariously as well. So people who are just watching sports and just cheering for their favorite player or their favorite team and their team wins, big boost of testosterone after the game, right? And, um, and likewise, a uh, big drop in those who are cheering for a team or a player who ends up losing. Um, so that happens in sports. Uh, that was studied in the 90s, uh, big one, uh, one of the World Cups. I'm not a sports guy, so I, yeah, the details elude um, me. And then it was um, extended uh, in the late 2000s there after the McCain-Obama election. So same thing So with, with in the States with Democrats and Republicans. Um, Democrats got a big boost of testosterone and, um, and Republicans dropped, had a big drop. Yeah. That's wild. It is, it yeah. is, yeah, it's quite wild, yeah. Um, so uh, hearing that, I guess my big question is kind of the time scale of it because in my mind, hormones like um, steroids, sex hormones, have always seemed kind of like static. Mm. Like it's a very slow decline with old age and a very slow decline in puberty. Mm -hmm. And I mean, probably on average, that's the case. Yeah. But uh, from what I was reading, like for example, in, in the study you did in 2014, where you looked at uh, serum testosterone from watching faces, that means there was a, a measurable change in a matter of minutes. Yeah. So how, how much can it change within time to time? And for example, like let's say you're your favorite sports team wins or you win in a, in a card game or something, how long can you expect that boost to stay with you? Mm. Oh, that's a good one. I, I, you know, I'm not actually sure about that, the, the latter one. Um, I would say the effects of it, um, you could probably ride that for a few hours at least. Um, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't think more than a day. Um, there, because, and only because the circadian variation of these hormones tends to be larger than the those like active fluctuations that we have during the day, right? So yeah, social encounters will can change the direction of it, but um, but yeah, if we our, our baseline for understanding how hormones are working um, is generally for most of them they're peaking in the morning, and you've got this circadian decrease, uh, and then they start. Um, rising again uh, or, or reach a peak and increase right before you wake up again the next day. Um, but that's the circadian fluctuation. You've also got um, a, um, 
a, a shorter time scale, so about 90 to 20 minutes, called a pulsatile release, that on top of the circadian rhythm, you've got this um, 90 to 20, 120 minute uh, fluctuation. Um, that is, is just built into this, this sort of complex negative feedback cycle um, that's regulating the release of, of these hormones. And it's just a rhythm that other fluctuations then piggyback on, right? So, so those daily uh, fluctuations are sort of with, are going to certainly be, well, not certainly, but most of the time within that circadian range. You can, you can go higher, on, uh, I think, in many cases. Um, but the, you always have to um, go back to those, they're, they're sort of called attractor states, I guess. They, um, all other things being equal, you will just gradually return to that default, right? That, um, uh, those two rhythms that are sort of piggybacking on each other. Um, yeah, but in the meantime, the, on the order of minutes, um, and to, you know, like I said, maybe, maybe a couple hours or so, depending on well, what the behaviors are afterwards, right? You could get into a bit of a feedback loop with competition, right? If you win a, if you win a game and you get a boost of testosterone, that can increase your likelihood and willingness to play another game. If you win that, um, you know, you can just keep the cycle going. So, but things are, things are uh, not deterministic, they're... Uh, I mean, anything can happen in games and competitions and things like that, right? So, so uh, you know, eventually you'll, you'll just fall back down to your baseline, those two rhythms. Yeah. And, and from my understanding, this is true in women and men, right? It's true in both, but with testosterone specifically, men have um, much, well, about three times as much testosterone, um, typically around that range, three or four times. Um, and more variance around that as well. So the fluctuations are higher because um, women tend to be producing almost all their testosterone in their adrenal glands, which we are producing some. Uh, so men are producing some in our adrenals, but most of them, most of the, our testosterone comes from the testes. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Um, that's, that's crazy. I, I didn't realize it, it would be, I guess, so like, um, so manipulatable, or like your body could change it so quickly. Oh yeah, yeah, on the, on the order of, you know, yeah. um, I'd say seconds, tens of seconds, um, and then to influence you on the, on the range of minutes to hours, uh, certainly that's the case. So that's what we call activational effects of hormones, right? So um, I think, did we cover this in, in our, uh, uh, in 280? I think I might have done it maybe briefly. Um, should I go into that? The difference between what are called organizational and activational effects of hormones? Yeah, you, you did cover that, and I would, I would love to go into it, because that's actually something I don't feel very confident sure. in the course of the Sure, sure, absolutely, yeah. Um, well, I'll, do, I'll, do a sh I'll try to do a short, simple version of it, which is um, these two categories of effects um, operate on different timescales. So... Activational effects are what we've just been talking about. Those, you know, you, you have an interaction, um, like a, a challenge, like a competition, and you can you'll be able to see the uh, immediate effects of that the perceived situation affecting your hormones, the hormones affecting your response to it. Uh, as I said, on the on the scale of minutes, right? But that's activational effects. 
Um, and so again, that's a, that's that reciprocal feedback loop that's going on in your in your immediate day to day life. Organizational effects of hormones um, have to do well. The main one we talked about, uh, the main one that we covered in in biopsych was sexual differentiation. So um, what what is it that makes a person develop in the uh, masculine or feminine direction. And, um, and so these start quite early on. Um, there's two major periods for organizational effects of hormones um, because they will change the, the structure and the function of tissue. Um, and that includes, that's so, so for our, usually in, in psychology our purposes are uh, nervous tissue. That's the brain, that's the mind. But it's others as well, right? So muscle, uh, tissue, and so on. And um, organizational effects, as I said, change the, the structure and function of tissues, including neural tissues, so can change, it can make certain parts of the brain uh, sexually dimorphic. So you, you will just be able to, on average, um, see that there's a sex difference in uh, say one region of the hypothalamus or um, certain cortical areas that have been influenced early on by exposure or lack of exposure to um, testosterone or estradiol. And uh, the two main points of life that this happens in is perinatally, so just before and just after birth, and uh, puberty. Yeah, yeah, so those are the two big ones. Um. Uh, as far as neurological differences goes, due to hormones, what are what are some big ones? What what do you think um, is is the most impacted by a difference in the the sexes or the, the effect of hormones? Mm. Mm. I don't know. This has never been my my area of uh, actual expertise in it, and I hesitate to to dip my toes into this one because. Fair because it's complicated, it's very complicated. Um, but um, one thing I'll, I will mention that I've always found, uh, like since I learned it, found it one of the most interesting facts was the masculinizing effects of hormones are a direct result of estradiol rather than androgen steroids like testosterone. Um, and the reason for that is that um, estradiol itself uh, gets soaked up by proteins, so absorbed and, and just bound to um, free proteins in the uh, serum in circulation, and very little of it makes it uh, to the brain during the perinatal period. Uh, so the testosterone doesn't, and testosterone will make it to the brain, um, be absorbed, go past that blood-brain barrier, and um, and into the brain where it's then converted into estradiol, which is the main estrogen. And that estrogen is what goes on to have the effect of masculinizing certain regions of the brain. So, yeah. Really? Yes, yes. It's the estradiol is responsible for masculinization. Yeah. That's so interesting. Yes, it is. Yeah. I didn't know that. The, the one I've heard about, and this might just be complete bogus, is that women tend to have a thicker corpus callosum. Mm. Uh, yeah, I, I think that one is true, um, tends to be, yeah, it, it does, I, th I think it's the, um, splenium sp specifically. I, actually, you know what, I do want to add 
my own uh, skepticism to the end of that because that might turn out not to be the case uh, when we look at large sets of data. But that would, that's been like a, a, a classic finding in neuroanatomy is the, the very back, the very, uh, like if you, do, if you were to divide the corpus callosum apart, the fiber bundle that connects both hemispheres of the brain into three parts, um, then the, the, the one on the posterior side is larger in women. That's been a classic finding in, in neuroanatomy. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Speaking of splitting the corpus callosum, <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, there's there's a lot of case studies in psychology, but this one has always been the most fascinating to me, primarily because I haven't heard of many other ones. Mm. Um, but I I found the whole split brain thing uh, incredibly fascinating. Yeah. And you did talk about it in the course that you did. Yes. Um, I was curious if you could kind of explain why it's done. Um, kind of what does it mean, and then. What are the effects of it? Right. Yeah. So, again, the corpus callosum is uh, a, 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 a tract, so um, it's, it's a, essentially a nerve bundle in the brain that connects the two hemispheres, right? Um, so every region of the cortex on one side is connecting to uh, a, a comparable side, a comparable area on the other side of, uh, of the brain through this tract, um, there's about 200 million fibers in it. Uh, so 200 million you know, wires or axons. And um, there's about 10 to 20 billion neurons in the cortex, uh, in, in the average adult cortex. So we're looking at about one to 2% um, of neurons are connecting between between the hemispheres, so it's a it's a low amount, but it seems to be pretty crucial. So uh, it it's helps integrate. It's actually the biggest one. There's a couple other minor regions where the hemispheres connect to each other, but it's by far uh, the biggest one. And it is cut intentionally in some cases of epilepsy, where um, the idea is to prevent the spread of a seizure from one side to the other um, and and hopefully keep um, any arising seizure contained or even extinguish it faster uh, by preventing the spread of it. And, um, and so <clears throat> when it's done, the hemispheres no longer talk to each other, uh, at least through the what, what, they, what used to be their major source of communication. Um, and I really recommend actually just posting the video of, uh, of Gazanaga and his uh, split-brain patient, I forget the guy's name uh, at, at the moment, but um, he was giving, when, he, when he was demonstrating what this looks like, <laughs> um, it's quite remarkable. So the right hemisphere of the brain is processing information and controlling the left side of the body, and vice versa, left hemisphere of the brain uh, perceiving and controlling the right side of the body. So, um, really briefly, when a patient who underwent um, a severing of the corpus callosum uh, would be put in front of a screen and asked to uh, simply stare at the exact center of a screen and be presented with two objects 
um, and asked to describe them. They could only talk about, they could only describe what was going on in their right visual field. Right visual field being perceived by the left hemisphere, the left hemisphere being the location in the vast majority of people um, of where their most of their language module resides, right? So being able to talk about it. Convert that visual perception into a linguistic representation and then, and then communicate it. The right hemisphere was perceiving what was going on in the left visual field, but couldn't talk about it. Um, so, or another way of framing it is the part of the patient's mind that could talk had no access to that perception. So was verbally communicating that um, they had not seen, didn't know what it was, yeah. which is wild. Because when you get the person's, um, you, when you ask, the last part of the, the demonstration was if you ask him to then draw what he saw um, with his right hand, um, is this right? Is it left hand? No, it's left hand. Left yeah, hand, yeah, with the left hand. hand. Um, then he'll draw the image of what he saw. And uh, there's, a, there's a great moment where Gazanaga asks him, um, why did you draw that? <laughs> Like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. It's it's pretty insane to think that your your mind could be divisible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Crazy concept. Mm -hmm. Pretty cool case study. Yes. Yeah. Quite. Quite so. Yeah. There's a lot of uh, that. That's a great classic one. Um, and yeah, I mean, as, as you just mentioned, it it really shows that principle of modularity in the brain. Right. The brain is this. We do have this coherent experience of everything, but it's very reliant on an ongoing network, communication network between different regions of the brain. And when you sever some of that, yeah, you get all sorts of, of um, um, modularity, like uh, isolated modularity um, parts of the brain that just, yeah, are, I guess, by themselves. Yeah. Well, in, in the split brain, and they're not quite by themselves because they can control half the body. Mm -hmm. But I'm sure there's many other... Uh... Yeah, the principle is you could, um, you can imagine severing really any connecting fibers between any two regions of the brain. And the same principle would apply. Yeah. 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 It still works. It's crazy. Mm -hmm. That one always blew my mind. Yeah. Very interesting to handle that. Um, I want to take a little detour. Sure. Uh, and by little, I mean completely derail this conversation. Let's do it. And I, I, I'm curious about you. Um, I, I always ask people this question for some reason. Mm -hmm. It's just been a thing I do. But I, I'm always curious how you were as a kid and then how you kind of grew up to be where you are now. Because um, I'm just fascinated by how people get to the places they are. Sure. So what, what was little Evan like? And, and why did you end up here? Wow. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Let me sit with that one for a moment. <laughs> no, that's okay. Yeah. Uh, you don't have to do a super detailed explanation, okay. but uh, just like I'm curious because one thing I've been thinking about or something that's often on my mind is how personality is, is um, mm -hmm. you say, nurture or nature. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I found in a lot of people, they tend to just kind of stay in the same personality. Like a lot of people don't really change personality. Well, that's true. That's true. Personality is quite stable by the time you're an adult. There's very few things we know that'll... Um, reliably cha uh, change any feature of personality for the, uh, for the long term. 
um, psychedelic drugs actually are one of them, but uh, but otherwise a very few things. It's it's quite a stable thing by the time it reaches adulthood. Um, but I okay. So well, let, let me. I'll, I'll describe a little bit. Of, yeah, uh, let me let me go through a broad stroke uh, chronology here. So. I remember as a kid being, well, well, one thing, speaking of personality, I'm on the like 92nd, 93rd percentile for introversion, which is why that whole public speaking thing was, uh, no, that was more of a shyness thing, actually, I, I will say, rather than an introversion thing, but um, uh, <clears throat> both were the case, so I was a relatively introverted, shy kid, um, had an obsession with Star Trek and uh, science fiction in general and wanted to, was really just mesmerized by um, expansion and exploration uh, because of that. Because Gene Roddenberry has a really nice vision for the future. Um, and uh, it became clear, however, uh, throughout my childhood that it, the likelihood of being able to explore deep space was rather low. Um, so. I thought, all right, well, if that's not on the table, then um, what about inner space? That's a whole, you know, the mind is, the, the human brain is an extremely complicated thing. And, um, and the mind is so odd and so strange that, uh, especially humans compared to other animals, this one really got me fixated. Um, so... Well, I will say, I'll say, childhood Evan used to spend a lot of time, I was lucky enough to grow up in um, a region of northern Ontario where I had easy access to forests. So I used to just come home from school, grab some books, go into the forest and just read for hours, and then come back and, and eat some dinner, do it again, usually, and uh, until it was dark. Uh, that would be a, a, a common habit of mine. Um, probably how I got into all this in the first place. And... Again, yeah, that strangeness of like, why are humans? I would just look around and, and notice if we're different, right? This species is quite strange compared to compared to the other animals that seem to be around us. Um, so, what is it? What is it about us that makes us unique like that? And, um, and I thought in high school, I started thinking about language. I started befriending people who didn't have English as their first language. And um, I, I got really interested in uh, linguistic variation and, you know, the evolution of language as well. So what, um, th th this was quite interesting, like, is language influencing the structure and content of our thoughts? Um, do, are we more inclined towards, for example, some ideologies or just some modes of thinking because of what the vocabulary or, or grammatical structure of our language is, right? So I got really into language. Um, and so that, that at, after high school, uh, prompted me to go into linguistics. I thought, okay, um, if there's one thing that really separates us from other animals is language. There's many things, but uh, but that's I thought that's a big one. I'll I'll go there, and um, it's uh, linguistics in most link most departments. Um, they do a good job, I would say, of of giving a nice overview of the structure of language in general. 
But most people who go into linguistics, like easily 99%, uh, are doing it to get into speech-language pathology. They're not, again, interested in, that, in that, um, the pure science side. They're more on the uh, therapeutic or clinical side. Um, and then by the time I got into third year, my undergrad there, I, I, I took two courses, psycholinguistics and neurolinguistics. And that was the clincher. I realized then that, um, no, if, if I, first of all, if I wanted to understand language, I have to understand the rest of the mind. So I can't even, even if it was just uh, language that I was interested in, I still need the rest of the brain and the rest of the mind to, to contextualize it. Um, but beyond that, I started seeing that there's a lot of interesting other unique parts to the human experience, to the human mind, um, that, a, that a good basis in neuroscience and psychology would really help with. So I decided to finish off that degree, do one in behavioral neuroscience, and, um, and then here I am. Cool. Yeah. So you have a degree in linguistics. Well. Got a degree in linguistics, yeah. And, uh, yeah, yeah, so, yeah, that was how I started. I, I never really followed through with it. I, I mean, I'm not studying sort of like hormones and language, right? It's, uh, like I said, I sort of went into grad school just trying to fill out that blind spot, that major blind spot, which is, uh, again, the hypothalamus. I, I learned about it in my neuroscience courses, but it was always one of, like, ah, this is, this is boring. <laughs> this one is like, this is... This is just regulating drinking and eating and temperature and sex and like uh, it's not it, it's not those uniquely human things, you know. Um, but uh, that being said, again, it it helps contextualize everything else as well. It's um, you know it's it's all it is all one system. Um, ultimately, these things that make us human are in service of those fundamental Darwinian evolutionary principles that don't go away. They never go away, right? So, um, so yeah, understanding all of it is, is how to understand any of it. <laughs> and, and it's a never-ending quest because of that. It's a lot to understand, I imagine. It'll never end. No. But that's kind of an exciting part of it. It is. It is. It will never, we'll never run out of things to do. Yeah, yeah it's cool. Yeah. Um, that's interesting. That's, that's cool. Um, I meant to ask you this uh, earlier, but I forgot, so I'm just going to ask you this now. Mm -hmm. um, are, are you a French speaker? You're in Quebec, right? I, I, took, I took French immersion until I was in grade 10, and then I let it get really rusty, and then I was living in Montreal for close to a year, and it started coming back by the end of that, but I would say no, it's, it's, uh, I, I, I can understand French, I'll say I'm, I'm not a good speaker. Fair enough. It's my own personal interest because French is my first language. Oh, cool. I'm completely illiterate, but I can speak it fluently. Interesting. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, uh, my mom's from Paris, so I got the, uh, the the French treatment as a small kid. Nice, nice. Yeah, well, I should probably start digging into the questions I have planned. Um, it's not, not, not too many, but I, I think uh, there's a lot to talk about. Um, one, one of the big reasons I got into psychology and, and something I'm curious to pick your brain about is actually addiction. Okay. Because my family, particularly my dad's side, though my mom's side as well, has a pretty rich history of drug use and alcoholism. Mm. And... I was gone. Yeah. yeah. And um, uh, something that was really insightful for me was actually podcasts 
about addiction and, and psychology. And um, I guess I, I've learned a lot of things that are kind of counter to popular belief. It's kind of my own opinions at this point. But I was very curious as to what your stance on addiction is. Uh, if you have anything that you think is like a misconception that, that people have or um, the other one I was quite curious to ask about it as well is how it like pries on the brain because the reward circuitry of it is very interesting. Yeah, yeah. I guess there's a lot to unpack there. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, it is a complex issue and, and I do want to uh, start by saying again I'm not a addictions, uh, I, I, like I'm not a clinical psychologist and I'm not an addictions researcher as well so um, I can do my best with this one. Um, one thing we can say about drugs in general is that um, unlike other stimuli that can be the um, the like uh, fixation for an addiction, um, gambling is a big one, sex or shopping, video games, um, the internet, right, social media can be, uh, all, all these things can be, um, can, can be points that just draw unhealthy amounts of attention and energy and resources to them. Um, the unique thing about drugs is that um, instead of just getting your own reinforcement or reward or seeking circuit uh, of the brain into a positive, essentially a positive feedback loop is, is what an addiction is, um, that's not balanced by um, everything else going on in life, right? Because uh, usually these things are filling some kind of need uh, and doing them um, maybe too well to the exclusion of a, a balance of things that, that should be um, should be filling them, right? Well, um, those, other, those other things I just mentioned can get the mind itself into a um, this this uh, fixated mode of, of, of positive feedback of, of seeking this whatever the stimulus happens to be, but drugs on the other hand can push those systems beyond their physiological normal limits. Right? If you are consuming like a psychostimulant, you're stimulating the dopamine receptors more than dopamine can stimulate them. Uh, your own dopamine because you only produce so much dopamine, right? It doesn't matter what dynamic the, the networks or the circuits in your brain have gotten themselves into, there's only so much dopamine. Uh, there's only dopamine, the maximum rate of dopamine that's produced. And when you, when you start introducing a foreign substance that can stimulate the receptors that dopamine works on, more than dopamine does, then it, uh, we call that a super stimulus, right? So that, that is what makes drugs unique in um, their potential for addiction. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, I would, I would have to say, like, <clears throat> if I'm going to clear up any misconceptions about it, it's probably, it's probably good that, that we should, like, state what the misconceptions are. If you have any in mind yourself um, that I might miss, please. Yeah. Uh, well, a big one. And um, I, the main one I think of when I talk about stuff like this. I guess I didn't make it clear, but um, I've been I've been reading this book by um, Carl Hart, I believe, mm -hmm. called Drug Use for Grown Ups. Okay, yeah. And in the book, he talks about how 
most people who use drugs aren't addicted to them. That's right. Yet most people believe that the cause of addiction is the drug itself. Yes. And uh, to me, that sounds like a misconception because, um, I, I, at least in my my view, a lot of addiction is caused from people self-medicating, and the drug is kind of as your brain trying to grab onto a solution for the problem. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a that's a good way of putting it. I would say the a, a really robust perspective uh, on addiction understands that. Well, there's there's something I use in the class we call the biopsychosocial model mm-hmm. of everything and all of behavior, but it, it really applies well for addiction because you can look at risk and protective factors for addiction, um, for, and you can look at them at all three of these levels: biological risk and protective factors psychological risk and protective factors, and social, or so, sociocultural and political risk and protective factors. Um, and so when it comes to biology, that could be genes. So some people are genetically more predisposed to developing an addiction, just like some are people are more genetically predisposed to developing any mental disorder um, than others, or just any behavioral phenotype than others. Um, so genetics is part of biology, the structure and function of your brain, which is um, very uh, strongly influenced by genetics, but not it's not the exclusive result of genetics, um, because that, the, the biology interacts with the um, psychology and the, the psychological and social levels. So the way that your life unfolds and the way you interact with others around you, what your culture and, and social context. Um, and the biggest risk factor, uh, or one, one of the biggest risk factors, um, that is, I, think it, I think it's uncontroversial, is um, the childhood history of trauma. So um, uh, trauma and neglect. Right? I remember, well, Gabor Mate is a, a, a local MD who's probably the best person to talk to about this. But um, you know he, he's famous for observing that in the downtown east side here in Vancouver, hundred uh, percent of his patients had a who, who were addicted to either stimulants or opioids were had a history of childhood sexual physical um, abuse and or um, severe neglect, and so. Um, so that's the, those are the major risk factors, right? Um, people who are, as you said, in a sense, self-medicating, right? Uh, trying to restore some kind of physiological balance and and as uh, emotional balance to their lives, um, because they, rather than getting a stable foundational grounding in self-regulation through social support around them. Um, through healthy social support, they would get the opposite, right? And uh, and because of that, chemicals are actually quite a good way of bringing your system back in to a state of, of uh, that's that's out of despair and uh, and pain. Um, so so that's a big one. That's a big risk factor. Um, so the opposite, of course, is a major protective factor, right? Yeah. Uh, both my dad and my uncle who have had substance abuse issues have actually been patients of Dr. Mate. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, which I thought was funny, like a small world. Uh, Canada is kind of a small world. Right, yeah. 
I'd love to interview him someday. That's a dream podcast guest. Yeah, that's the other uh, another book that was really influential in my kind of um, understanding of the whole issue was in the realm of hungry ghosts, mm-hmm. um, because the emphasis I realized, especially in his view, which is is certainly an an, uh, an opinionated view, I'd, I'd imagine, um, is very much on trauma and not nearly as much as the emphasis is placed upon the substances itself. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I think that's one thing that I, I feel odd about in society is that the um, people often blame the substances and not really look at the core issues. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's, it's very true. You're, you're absolutely right about that. The data does, uh, does demonstrate the truth of your statement that the vast majority of people who do drugs do not become addicts, right? So um, it's, it, there, there is no causal relationship um, or deterministic relationship between the drugs and the uh, and, and an addiction. It's it's a it's a complex interaction of the drugs with these um, a, a set of risk factors. Um, and again, it's again biological, psychological, um, which can include um, personality factors. Um, yeah, personality factors are a big one, so, and the, the social context as well. Availability for drugs, what their expected uses, and so on. Right, like when people have healthy outlets um, with, you know, let, well, let's let's just say it with uh, clean access to clean uh, and safe, a uh, clean and safe drug supply, where you can do the drug um, in a safe environment uh, without any major risks to yourself. Uh, then it, you know, it tends to decrease a lot of the, the potential problems that drugs have. A major one for our uh, opioid crisis uh, is is a tainted, toxic supply. It's um, it's people being poisoned. Um, it's what many of these overdose de- overdose deaths are all about. Yeah, it's 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 uh, really unfortunate that that people are just dying because the drugs are unclean. Yeah, yeah, and 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 again, so socio-cultural and political context. It's uh, addiction is a uh, it's a healthcare issue. Right? Absolutely, it's not a criminal justice issue, and and should never have been uh, under that uh, under that framework. Right. So there are, there are crimes um, that tend to get associated with drug users, um, but the crimes are the crimes. The the drug use is a health uh, is a, is a health issue. So those, those need to be separated. Yeah, I would agree. And, and uh, demonizing people who use drugs who have already had the worst situation coming up in their lives, yeah. trying to deal with it, doesn't help them. Yeah, and well, well, punishment certainly is not a helpful way of, of uh, bringing someone out of that state. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, on the subject of drugs, mm-hmm. um, I was really interested, especially in the course that we or you 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 gave, um, on how much drugs have impacted our knowledge of the human mind. So, twenty um, percent. <laughs> I don't know. That's a that, that's a lot. Quite a lot. Yeah. It's um, that, that's a, that's actually really tough to pin down uh, about the like. What do we know about the mind because of drugs? Um, 
not as much as we should, I will say. Um, and and I should start that by you know acknowledging that we we've lost fifty years of potential research uh, because of the modern war on drugs that started in the and really started earlier than the nineteen seventies, but um, but really uh, ramped up really ramped up in the 1970s. Um, there was a, a lot of research that was going on in the especially 50s and 60s on many psychoactive substances and their influence on the mind. Um, a lot of it's, there, there's a revival going on right now for a lot of it. Um, in the last 15 or so years, uh, 15, 20 years or so, um, still ramping up. But, um, but we went through a, a, a sort of a scientific winter um, when it comes to that. And unfortunately, um, the research that was going on in the 50s and 60s, I mean, we can't just pull that research and, um, and, and use it as our modern standards because the, you know, the scientific methods have, and statistical methods have improved so much since then that... Uh, that a lot of this research really has to be redone. And so that's all to say that we would know and will know much, much more about the structure and function of the mind um, when we have a more liberal access to researching the mind through substances that are currently illegal and, um, and yeah, are, are just uh, because of that. Uh, extremely difficult to do research on. Yeah, there's, there's not a lot of people that have access to uh, like the licensing and whatnot to, to actually study these things. It's very difficult. It's yeah. Very, very difficult. Yeah. But, I mean, at least from how I see it, a lot of the older understanding of the mind was, was based upon you could take something and it would change how you felt. Like there's opioid receptors in the brain and cannabinoid receptors. Yeah. Nicotine and muscarin. Exactly, exactly. So, there is so much we can learn about the function, the, the structure and function of different neurotransmitter systems in the brain, about uh, sensation and perception, um, about uh, emotional dynamics, about cognitive structures that are modified in some way um, as a result of psychoactive substances. And, um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's quite a tragedy. We've lost uh, about 50 years worth of research because of that. Yeah. But it's good for me because uh, if I ever want to study it, then I get on the, 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 the good end of the, the, the renaissance. We're, we're trending in the right direction, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I hope so. Yeah. Um, as far as the right direction goes, um, are there any therapies or, or, or uses for for? drugs that you're really excited to see implemented in the future? Like MDMA is, is very close to being uh, greenlit for therapy. Right. Um, Ketamine is being used in antidepressants. So are there, are there anything, or not in, as an antidepressant, are there things you're looking to be like, this will help people or, or things that you would like to see research, like mm -hmm. things that you think might be underutilized? Yeah, so, so when, uh, that's, again, I'm not being a clinical... Um, psychologists or uh, like like my emphasis has always been on understanding what is the mind and how does it work right so therapies is is um, I'm, I'm aware of the use of some substances for the potential use of it for some therapies um, as you mentioned yeah uh, ketamine 
for depression seem to be effective in many people. Um, it's, no, 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 nothing seems to be a panacea, as uh, a lot of enthusiasts will um, would have everyone believe. Um, MDMA for PTSD seems to be that uh, the furthest along has passed its phase three clinical trials as of last summer, I think. Um, uh, yeah, and uh, and then psilocybin um, seems to have a lot of show a lot of promise for uh, depression as well. I'm not, uh, I actually forget about its um, the prospect of using it as well on uh, PTSD or maybe CPTSD, a complex post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, but I have um, I've heard of some discussion around using it in the future, potentially for things like body dysmorphia, and um, for treating some of the uh, social deficits in autistic, the autistic spectrum disorder. So um, with body dysmorphia, that one interested me, um, just based on the idea that one of the primary effects, if, if you can describe any primary effect of a psychedelic substance, um, what the, one of the primary effects seems to be a kind of boundary dissolution or boundary flexibility. So one thing we know is um, general functional connectivity across the entire cortex increases. Regions of the brain start talking to each other that didn't before, um, and subjectively people will report um, at high enough doses things like a dissolution of the boundary between self and other, between themselves and the rest of the world. Um, so boundary dissolution, but boundary fluidity, I would say, right? So body dysmorphia, of course, is a, a false uh, perception of your own body map, right? You have a body of a particular shape, and you're seeing it in a way that doesn't reflect reality. And so um, your, your internal schema of the body it, being different is causing... I guess, error signals that just um, are the feeling of discomfort, right? Not that, that mismatch um, between schema and, and actual uh, bottom-up processing of the, of, of the sensation of the body. Um, driving the person to try to push their body in the direction of what the schema is. And so that can be all sorts of directions depending on how, what the schema actually looks like. Um, and so psychedelics might be able to, um, during a psychedelic trip, the idea being that, um, the researchers seem to be hopeful that the idea is um, guided trips will help people to reshape that schema itself, right? So, so reduce that error signal between the actual body and the schema. And, um, and by doing that, um, decrease the discomfort, treat the dysmorphia. I never heard of that. Mm -hmm. um, could you define a schema uh, in a psychological context? Sure, or, sure. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm I'm trying to make this as accessible as possible. Sure. Yeah, you bet. You bet. So so I'd say that it's a very broad, uh, broadly used term and can apply to a lot of things. And in like concepts, for example, would be an example of a schema. Like if you have a you have a concept um, about trees right so that's that could be that's a schema you've got a schema about what trees tend to be 
um, and we build a, you know higher as we develop we, we um, increase the uh, specificity of our schemas and the relationship between them and other ones so for example kids growing up will um, learn that like that four-legged furry creature was a dog that one was a dog that one was a dog and then they see a cat and they'll say dog right so it's, it's just four-legged furry creatures are are dogs um, and then they have to make a new uh, schema uh, or sub-schema in a sense you can have a hierarchy of these things right or a, a network of them and so you need a new one you still have the four-legged furry thing and then you that one just gets called mammals now maybe right? something like that so you modify it so a schema again can be a concept or uh, a set of concepts um, but it can also be a process, like um, the like a ritual can be a schema as well. What are you? How are you supposed to behave in a certain context, right? Like how are we supposed to interact in a podcast? That's we've got a schema for this without ever even having really done it. We have basic social rules for how to interact, right? And though those that's a schema as well. So um, essentially, it's it's um, you can think of it as a model of the world, of some aspect of the world. Okay. Um, yeah. Well, back back to the subject of, of psychedelic therapies. Um, one that I, I've heard people talk about, but no real discussion from, like, any, any like, uh, academic sources I've seen was Ibogaine. Mm. Um, at least in treating people with opioid addictions. Because mm. um, all I've heard of it is anecdotal. And I don't know if you know anything about it. Um, no, I, I have to say with this one, I don't. Uh, this one, this one, for a couple of years there, I was aware of it, uh, and you just reminded me of the, its existence right now by by bringing it up. I know it's a it's a West African, uh, I'm from a West African shrub, I believe, um, and I think it's sort of a mix. Um, the, re the receptors in the brain that it activates are a mix of those that drugs like ketamine do and uh, psychedelics. So it sort of like straddles the line between psychedelic and dissociative drug like like ketamine. Huh. Yeah, something like that. But but when it comes to actually like what is it doing um, and what research has gone into it, that's I pretty much I think I've given you everything. I Ah, yeah. fair enough. Yeah. yeah, that's about as much as I know about it. But um, yeah, I've, I've heard anecdotal accounts of people um, doing it, and then it would stop them from having withdrawal symptoms. Mm, interesting. Uh, which is a powerful anecdote, but at the same time, I, it's probably hard to study the bark of some African shrub that's also a drug here. Mm -hmm. It's probably not much push for it. Not much. Yeah, there's a, there's always some, of course, right? But not too much. Yeah, I'd be curious to learn about that one day. Yeah. Well, maybe that's something to do. That's true. That's true. It couldn't be too hard to find one. Grow a bit. Yeah. <laughs> God. Um, the other other one I learned that was quite curious, and actually uh, a friend of my mom's is managing a study on psilocybin for alcoholism. Oh, cool. Um, but it's actually LSD for alcoholism. Because mm -hmm. it's a famous story. I don't know if you know this one, but the Alcoholics Anonymous founder thought that the 13th step should be LSD. Yes, I do. <laughs> I do know this one, yeah. That's right. I forget the guy's name, but that, that was... Uh... It was widely known at the time, and then of course the the pushback against it was enough to get him to drop it. But yeah, he did want he did want everyone to trip their way out of their addiction. Yeah, um, and some of the research that it was based on actually happened in Canada in Saskatoon, University of Saskatoon. Uh, 
Siegfried Osmond, I think, was the uh, was the, the researcher there at the time, working on that that um, subfield there that alcohol alcoholism or addictions and uh, psychedelics, specifically LSD. I think he coined the term psychedelic. Actually, I think him and um, Aldous Huxley. Uh, they were they were good friends, and uh, and through discussions between the two of them, um, coined the term psychedelic in response to the at the time more widely used term was psychotomimetic, so mimicking a psychosis, uh, which is what people thought psychedelics were doing. Um, looking at it from the outside, uh, it sort of can resemble some features of some psychoses like schizophrenia. Um, but we know quite well now, I mean, even back then, they, they knew uh, uh, enough, but we know quite well now that, that there are other drugs, like amphetamines, for example, um, when taken in a high enough dose, will much more closely mimic uh, psychotic symptoms of uh, schizophrenia than psychedelics. Well, a very, very different experience. Yeah. Would, would that be true for drugs like delirians as well? Delirians, uh, delirians tend to be working on a, an entirely different neurotransmitter system. It's usually acetylcholine for delirians, um, and I will I, I will say the same thing about delirians. I said about uh, ibogaine. Yeah, yeah, not really my wheelhouse. Awareness. Yeah, yeah I've I've always I've I've heard stories of 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 delirians and. Um, I don't know why anyone would do that, mm. but I was always curious as to how it worked, mm -hmm. um, because it, it's, it seems like a complete departure from reality is pretty pretty wild that you could just eat something that makes you oh, yeah. detach from reality. Yeah, yeah. So those have been described, those ones um, are often compared to, they're often said to be the drug uh, class that evokes experiences that most closely resemble dreams. Um, so by affecting acetylcholine specifically, seem to make the uh, wake, your waking life much, much, much more dreamlike. And, um, and that kind of tracks with what we know about what's going on with dreaming. Um, when you're asleep, during REM sleep, the monoamines, uh, neurotransmitters like serotonin, dopamine, norepinephrine, those just get shut down a little bit. They, uh, those, those get um, turned down close to zero, and acetylcholine goes way up. So, um, so there's some reason to, um, or there, there's some neural correlate that that, uh, that makes sense to compare those two drugs, or the drug and the dream state. Huh, that's so interesting. I never knew that. Mm -hmm. um, I was quite curious about the whole psychopharmacology class in general. Mm -hmm. um, I would love to take it, but I didn't see it available on my courses this term. Um, so I'm technically not in the faculty of psychology. I still haven't really figured that out yet. Oh, well, what are you? I'm an undisclosed science oh, major, I think. Okay. Um, I was going to go try and get into neuroscience, and then I, I decided that I didn't want to do calculus. So. Oh, no, you should do calculus. Yeah, yeah, definitely do calculus. Yeah, yeah, don't, don't be afraid of calculus. Just go at it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, full steam ahead. <laughs>
<laughs> I was struggling. I was struggling. Sure, but. sure, sure. I, I, do 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 a little bit. Start right now, you know, uh, after this podcast. Right after this podcast. Start a little bit of calculus and then just, like, ease your way up to it. And then maybe in a year, take the course in. Yeah, well, the one that always gets me is I was, I was doing kinesiology before. And um, I learned calculus through biomechanics, and I didn't even know we were doing calculus, and it was really easy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Calculus 1 is uh, quite accessible. It's Calc 2 that everyone struggles with. I, that was the one, actually, I struggled in my undergrad. I, uh, Calc 2 was, was the hardest course, yeah, by, yeah. Far, by far, out of all of my courses. And it's a, it's a first-year course, <laughs> I think, right? Still first-year course in math, yeah. Hardest course I, I ever took in undergrad, yeah. Wow. In seven years of undergrad, yeah. But Calc 1 is lovely. Uh, highly recommend it. Yeah. Well, I'm, I might have to reconsider my life choices, but we'll, we'll see. We'll sure, see. sure, sure. <laughs> um, uh, what was I? Right. Cycle farm. Cycle farm. Yeah. Um, so I, the other question I had, because um, everyone's talking about drug therapies and, and, and like, oh, how could this be used for people and, and whatnot, but I was curious if you see a place for people who are mentally fit or, or mentally sound, however you want to you wanna say it. Uh, do you feel like there's a place for psychoactive compounds just to explore the mind or to have a new experience? Yeah, yeah, unambiguously, yes, uh, absolutely. That's um, I insist on it. <laughs> That's uh, yeah, yeah. I, I actually consider that to be a fundamental human right. I mean, I, I have uh, not seen this ever used in a legal context. I've I've brought it up with uh, my lawyer friends who. None of them have told me that this argument is uh, would, would get immediately. There's any reason why it would immediately be shot down. But um, but I always go back to Section Two of the uh, Charter of Rights and Freedoms in Canada, which guarantees us the freedom guarantees us freedom of thought, among other things. Um, but we know that psychoactive substances. Uh, change functional connectivity in the brain uh, in different ways depending on the class of drugs. Um, but in such a way that there are structures and contents of thought that are unaccessible. You can't actually get to them except through drugs. So by having zero recourse, no legal uh, means of accessing these drugs, we're being denied. Um, one of our fundamental rights. That's that's that is my take on it. Uh, and so, I like it. Yes, thank, take. thank you, thank you. <laughs> um, and what I'll say is, um, you know, many the vast majority of these illicit substances uh, can also be used responsibly. Um, and so, I think responsible adults uh, absolutely have that right, and we will again. Personally, individually, um, we can learn quite a lot from them. We know that scientifically. We know that we've already learned quite a lot from um, many of these substances. And, um, and I, I don't have to go through the, the you know, many testimonials of pe people who have uh, had their lives changed for the better by doing that. But I also think that um, it's a mechanism for personal exploration and growth as well. It doesn't necessarily have to be for improving mental health. It could be for starting where you're at and choosing to grow to an even greater state. And you can do that. Certain substances can be used to facilitate that.
So that so that is yes, absolutely. The answer is yes. <laughs> okay. Um, you mentioned earlier that psychedelics were one of the only ways that you could change your personality as an adult. Yeah. Um, do you know how that happens and, and what it kind of changes? No, I don't know how it happens. Um, we do know that it happens. So it tends to be the case that uh, I'll, I'll I'll just go through the most seems to be the most robust personality model in psychology is the um, big five factor, the five the five factor model. Um, so the, the acronym that's usually used is OCEAN to remember it. So it's openness to experience, conscientiousness, um, extroversion versus introversion, uh, agreeableness, and neuroticism. Um, people high in openness tend to be the ones to take um, substances volitionally in the first place which makes sense, open, open to new experiences. But with psychedelics, um, it also tends to increase the level of openness subsequent to, uh, to experimentation. So, um, and, and that seems to last. Um, at well over a year follow-up to the original experience, the original initial experience. And, um, and... Yeah, there's not really anything else that I'm familiar with that will um, will cause people like adults to ch uh, substantially change any of these five factors. Yeah. There's also it also seems to be evidence that um, neuroticism tends to go down as well, and uh, I think I. S I'll have to double check. I, I don't want to say anything else besides that. Of course. Yeah. No, I get that. Don't want to be talking out of your ass too Yeah, much. exactly. <laughs> um, oh, sure. Sorry. I don't actually think I had any other questions written down, I'll be honest. Um, yeah, well, um, uh, I, I, I think that's all the stuff I've written down, to be honest. Oh, well, we could... Um, sit here for a moment and uh, just allow more to come up if you want and then cut the, the pause out or leave it in if, you, if you'd like to do that. Uh, I, I try to leave them as edited as possible, okay. unedited, because um, it's just kind of funnier. I like the awkward pauses in sure. the conversation. Um, you ever try an unawkward pause? An unawkward pause? Right. Let's try it out. Let's have a pause. <laughs> All right. And just a few conscious breaths. Let's do it. Um, anything, I, anything come up for you? Yeah. I had a silly question from my girlfriend. I mean, I do want to talk a bit about personality. Sure. Because I find personality fascinating. Sure. But um, I was hoping you could answer a speed round, maybe for like one minute. How many hormones can you name? Oh, uh, not. <laughs> Let's see. Uh, not enough. Testosterone, estradiol, uh, uh, oxytocin, cortisol, vasopressin, um, ACTH, uh, CRH. T3, T4, thyroid-stimulating hormone, uh, luteinizing hormone, follicle-stimulating hormone, ghrelin, um, uh, PYY, uh, uh, vasoactive peptide, uh, dopamine, serotonin, norepinephrine, forget about those, uh, and, and adrenaline. Um, 
what else? Pregnenolone, progesterone. Um, There's other androgens and estrogens. And, and I think you forgot leptin. Oh, I forgot leptin! <laughs> I can't believe it. All right, well, thank you. Uh, yeah, you bet. That's a, that's a shout out to the missus. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so as far as personality goes, um, I think personality is pretty fascinating. And after learning about the Big Five model, I have essentially applied it to everyone I meet, and I, I'm trying to figure out where I would put them on the sliding scales of the, the five personality traits. Sure. Um, have you found that useful in dealing with people, or do, do you find like likeness in other people? You can be like, oh, you have a similar trait to me, or you can see how we're different in this way of personality. It makes sense to how you act. I guess so. I don't think about it consciously, usually. I, I think I went through a phase of doing that, um, of thinking about it consciously with everyone I was meeting. But I noticed that, yeah, I, I tend to resonate with people who are relatively high in uh, openness, uh, primarily, regardless of any other feature. Um, and agreeableness is helpful, usually. Disagree, you know, when people are low on agreeableness, it's hard to relate to them in general. Extroversion, introversion doesn't really matter, but um, it, it's more a little more conducive when people are more introverted, because um, our our social cycles will tend to line up a little bit more. Um, and I don't know. I, I get along with people at any level of neuroticism um, and conscientiousness as well. Yeah. Okay. Um. Actually, a lot of people probably have no idea what that means. Right, right. So can you give me a rapid fire five definitions of the traits? Sure. Yeah. Op op again, openness to experience we covered because yeah. that's uh, um, yeah, that was relatively straightforward. Um, being in uh, default explore mode for the world, right? Yeah. The explorers. Um, conscientiousness. Um, this one is. I gotta say, I'm, I'm not a personality uh, researcher or, or personality personality guy myself, but so I'll have to remember this one. I know that industriousness is one of the subscales of it, um, and uh, so what else is conscientiousness related to? From, from what I remember, it's like orderliness. It's orderliness, 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 and industriousness. Yeah, yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, so the degree to which people, yeah, are, are uh, uh, you don't have to be really like rigid with people, but you're, yeah, you're, or you're like, you're organized, you're well organized, basically. Right? Unlike me. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I, I fluctuate quite a lot on that scale. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, so it's OCE extroversion. Yeah, like, uh, so, so extroversion, I, when I'm thinking about, um, the way that people operate, and extroversion and introversion tends to be the uh, the one that accounts for more variance, more variability in people's behavior. Um, and I, I generally think of it as essentially where people get their energy from. Um, when you're in social situations, is that charging you up, and then uh, is being alone draining you, or or the, vice versa? Right. So for me, it's the other way around. I, I, um, I love socializing, but it takes energy, um, and I need to recharge and uh, spend time alone, 
not engaged in, in social activity to, to feel, to yeah, restore that balance essentially and, and to recharge. Uh, so that's extroversion, introversion, agreeableness, I think, I think that one kind of speaks for itself, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Neuroticism, um, yeah, this one, neuroticism is, is what? It's, um, well, help me out with this one. Um, from when I learned it, it was a sort of sensitivity to negative emotion. Mm, okay. It's kind yeah. of like, how sensitive are you to the bad things going on around you? Ah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that makes some sense. Um, so, when, like a, a degree of easygoingness, uh, or not having high neuroticism. It's, uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, I also, like those, those people who are hypervigilant, I would say, are also in, in the high neuroticism. Uh, scale like I, I I would again not my research area so please no, like this is not. this is the one I I would I would cut out if anything or put, put the biggest asterisks on <laughs> but uh, yeah. big asterisk yeah yeah uh, yeah I, I mean I don't know much about it I just learned um, I I watched a YouTube video where someone explained it I'm like this is interesting mm. I I don't think it's been covered in any course I've done no certainly it is interesting yeah and I'll I'll say actually um, I had a student last semester as well actually same class. Um, uh, that you took, who was asking me about um, studies relating big five personality uh, factors to neural dynamics, and I had to tell him I, I don't know of any. And I looked it up, and there's really very little, very very little out there. Um, uh, like like uh, you could count all the studies on one hand. So uh, so I, so I told him to. Um, to do it himself, to go <laughs> to to become that, he should become that researcher. Cool. Yeah. It's always odd to think about that you could just get to the point where you could research something and add new new information. Someone asked me. That's true. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> it's cool. I I, I, I dig it. Um, yeah, I, I had another question in my brain. Something else I wanted to talk about. Um, right. Um, you had a stroke. Sure. Yeah. Okay. I can talk about my stroke. Yeah. That's kind of crazy. Um, uh, right, I was a lot more interested in kind of the the emotional side of it because um, I did I did just listen to the podcast you did, and I will leave a link for it somewhere if you're curious. But you spent like half an hour going over kind of like what it was like and the story of it, and if people want to get deeper into that, I think they should check that out. Yeah. Um, because we're already creeping up on two hours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll keep it brief. Yeah. Yeah, but um, I, I'm I'm. Maybe if you could give like a gist of what happened and um, how it's how recovery has been. Yeah. Okay. So I was training for a half marathon. Uh, I was out for a run early in the morning. I stopped at a stoplight and um, cracked my neck. I was at the time relieving a lot of neck tension by sort of violently cracking my neck, sort of swinging it around and cracking it and. Um, and then the, the light turned green, I kept going. About a minute later, I noticed pain in my neck on the other side from where I cracked it. Um, and um, I thought it was just a cramp. It increased in intensity beyond any pain I'd ever experienced before, and so I stopped. When I stopped, my visual field started spinning counterclockwise. I started uh, falling over to my right. And... Um, uh, anything else? I once I stabilized myself, started um, started uh, contacting people, thinking I was having a migraine. 
but when I heard myself speak finally, I, I realized um, half my face is paralyzed and it's a stroke, so I had to call 911. So, um, so it was a genuine near-death experience, like very, very close to death. Uh, thought that I was gonna die. Well, I almost did. Um, so the, the stroke happened because of a dissection, a little layer of my vertebral artery came off, and probably due to the crack. And um, either it flaked off or pooled uh, a region of uh, some blood that coagulated and then, um, like, Turned, turned into a, um, I guess, a scab that, that just finds its way into the uh, brain. I thought, I, I was thinking at the time, this is my brain stem so I could die at any moment. Turned out it was my um, posterior inferior cerebellum, uh, which is nice. Um, if, if it's going to happen at all, that it's, it's nice that it's there rather than in the brain stem, which could you know, stop your heart, stop your uh, breathing. Um, so it affected my vision and coordination and, and, uh, and my ability to move my face temporarily. And emotionally, yeah, it, it was, uh, I mean, it caused, on top of just the, the, those symptoms, I'm panic. I mean, that's, that's, uh, you think you're going to die. It's, uh, that, that's, that's, uh, it's a lot. That's a lot. But that being said, um, through the panic, on the other side of the panic was serenity. I mean, a lot of people report in near-death experience uh, an acceptance and even a kind of, well, maybe not joy to it, but serenity, I would say, an acceptance and serenity. And there, I, I definitely experienced that as well. I knew almost for certain I was going to die, and I was like, okay, I guess. Whole, whole life didn't, like, flash before my eyes, but I sort of saw um, 35 years of my life, and... Of life, <laughs> and um, and maybe it's ending, and um, I didn't. I'm happy it didn't. I'm happy too. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, a lot of a lot of people tell me they're happy that it didn't. So um, afterwards, you asked about the, re the recovery and the emotional uh, effects of that. Yeah, because because I was listening to the the podcast where you did go into more detail on the second part yeah. about. Um, uh, dealing with anxiety and, and whatnot it's it's a it's a lot to to deal with I I, yeah I, I started off having multiple daily panic attacks and being unable to be on my own really um, without having that intense fear grip me um, and certainly and not being able to be out of like eye shot of, uh, of this, uh, a city right or, or uh, access, I guess, to uh, easy access to a hospital in case I needed it, for example. Right. So I thought, uh, I, I, I love going on long hikes, camping trips um, into the forests, and couldn't do that for a while uh, because of this, this fear that would grip me. And it would wake me up a lot during the night. Any weird, any odd sensation in the neck would, would trigger a panic, a deep panic attack, the sense that I was, again, about to die. So it, that, that feeling that I was going to die kept, uh, kept recurring many, many, many times. Uh, the actual risk of it was brought down to, to baseline, to, to average risk. But the feeling, I mean, you, you, know, you, you try telling that to your autonomic nervous system that 
that the likelihood that you're having a stroke is is basically zero. Uh, autonomic nervous system doesn't care; it doesn't believe you. It doesn't believe the, the prefrontal cortex. So, so, um, so you're still feeling like you're going to die. And um, I would say it's it's still there to some minor degree, but over the last four years, almost four years ago, it happened. Um, it's been, and I've been actively working with it as well. So meditation has also very much helped there. Um, I can find my way into um, a, at least some minimal meditative state within a panic attack, and then just notice, observe the panic attack happening, and find find the right opportunity to exert that minimal control over my breath again. And um, and then increase that. Just keep increasing it. And um, and then that now I can get out of a panic attack very very quickly within seconds. And um, most of them don't start because I'm catching them before it even gets to that point. That's a that's an amazing change. Yeah, it's it, yeah, it's quite good. It's quite good. So there's a lot of hope anyway uh, for anyone that, uh, that that suffers with that that deals with it. Um, it can be difficult, and it varies in intensity and difficulty, so I, I also don't want to like, diminish anyone's experience who has a, uh, an even harder time than I have, but uh, yeah, it's possible. Yeah, of course, and um, yeah, it obviously it's different for everyone. You can't go comparing yourself to people. Yeah. Um, one thing that stood out to me um, that I thought was quite interesting, I've had a similar experience in this regard. Um, on the podcast where you talked about it was, you'd have a recurring dream about a beat. Hmm. Um, yeah, um, I had uh, some negative experiences in my life when I was younger, and um, I keep having a recurring dream every once in a while, and I always wake up and like a sweat, so, ah, I basically it was the, someone would come in, or I would know I was going to die, and then someone would come into my house and kill me, mm -hmm. and um, I don't know, it was pretty stressful. <laughs> That uh, is, yeah. Um, but I never really figured it out until one day I pieced it together. I'm like, oh, this is actually a symbolistic thing. Um, and as soon as I realized that the actual happening of it had very little to do with what was happening in my life, I was able to like kind of stop the dream. Mm -hmm. Or at least uh, recognize it. But like just the other day, I had a dream that was like similar to it, but it was different. Like I, I closed the door and it didn't happen. So I was like, huh, that's interesting. I kind of like caught a symbol. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you, you woke up to that and, uh, and changed the dynamic. That's great. Yeah. yeah. It's very odd, but I don't know, just, just something I, I, I noticed that I resonated with. Yeah, cool. Yeah, those, it's always interesting. I, I love, um, I, I don't do it so much lately, but I used to be a very active lucid dreamer as well. And, uh, and I, I always would find that some of the most, the biggest insights I would get about my own life general was from lucid dreams and that's another again that, that like psychology can't can't study lucid dreaming right really um there's there's some there's some like you could find maybe neural correlates of, of some lucid dreams but there's a lot of interesting things uh that go on in dreams that psychology as a science has had to abandon because it's too subjective yeah but um, it'd be nice to find ways to reintroduce that because it's it's fascinating, very insightful. Do you not think that doing studies with like large data sets and coding the the subjective reports to try and turn that into data is valid? 
can be. Uh, yeah, it can be. You're you're very likely reducing noise in that case. Yeah. Um, so I would say there's a lot of there's a lot of insight that you can gain from that, and what you lose is the specifics of um, like psychology is sort of some of the most interesting. Uh, things we know about the mind come from individual case studies as well, right? And, and you end up uh, losing that level of detail when you're focusing on the individual and their extreme or really interesting experience when you do the statistics on, on like many people all having roughly the same experience. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it's, it, it just get you a different kind of data. Different yeah, a different data type. Yeah, they're, and they're complementary. Absolutely complementary. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. yeah, lucid dreaming's always seemed like an interesting one. Do you have any tips on how to lucid dream? I'd always done it since I was a kid, just naturally. So uh, not from personal experience, but I do. I have heard um, some advice for people who want to get into it because because you can learn to do it. Um, um, one is just making it a habit during your waking day of just asking yourself on a regular basis, "Am I dreaming?" and um, that question might lead over into your dreams, and the answer might be yes, eventually. And if that's the case, um, then you can wake up into that dream in a new way and start seeing things in a new light, right? And uh, and and lucidity within dreams is definitely variable. There's I, I know there's like non-lucid dreaming where you just take everything for granted. You think this is normal, uh, even though it's totally bizarre. Um, and then minimal lucidity where you've got this vague notion that you're in a dream but you can't really control yourself you're still being sort of like pulled along the dream right you can just sort of like you know you know basically it's in the dream and then the range the continuum or the spectrum of of control that you have over the dream to um, do whatever you want personally or like inception style start like recreating your surroundings like you're like reshaping them and changing the environment and what's going on in the dream so like god mode basically and uh yeah so so there's a whole range and um and practices to do that but one one thing um another thing that is is very typical um a, t a typical cue for waking yourself up into a dream is reading anything um because uh Stable symbols, words, sentences—they don't—they don't stay constant. If you look at any written, any written anything for a few seconds in a dream, it will change. Like the words that you're reading will start. The letters and the words will move around, and uh, or clocks, like looking at a clock, same sort of thing. Symbols tend to be uh, unstable. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. I've heard of one trick which was like flick light switches and the light will like unsync from the light switch. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. That's a good one too. Yeah, you can kind of kind of uh, desync reality a little bit. Right, yeah, interesting. Um, yeah, I've always found it interesting, but I've probably only lucid dreamed like five times in my life. It doesn't happen often. It was really, really a wild experience when it does. Yeah. You're pretty lucky then. You just get to have lucid dreams whenever. Yeah, I would say so. And and um, the I'll tell you something. I the most interesting thing I found about it was that there's been only a handful of times where I have uh, interacted with like the dream people uh, and just told them you're in my dream. And uh, there are different responses that you get from like 
dismissing me, treating me like any actual living person would if I told them they were in my dream, to um, on a couple occasions um, having the response come back at me of, um, I know. And that one really, uh, well, it's, 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 that's a lot to absorb when you, you've got a part of your own unconscious mind that's telling you that they know they're a part of your own, part of your dream and um, working out whether, what, what that is. Uh, that one has me very curious, but with no means of actually um, studying it, going after it. It's just, yeah, it's just something that happened that I thought, wow, wow. That is a crazy moment. Yeah. Well, cool. I think we should probably wrap up. We've, yeah, we've, yeah. We've talked over two, two hours. hours. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Great. Well, this was fun. Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, I always, I like to do a little segment at the end where I say thank you, because a lot of people have helped me get to this point. Mm. Um, so I want to thank some people. Thank you. Thank you for coming on. Okay. I, I really appreciate you giving me some of your time, um, having a chat with me. It's been a lot of fun. I got to thank um, my, my, my friend Reiner, who helped me learn about audio setup and lighting. And um, it's the only reason this sounds half decent and has light. It's not just a room, uh, which is fun. Uh, I got to thank my friend Noah, who let me use his Adobe account to edit these for the longest time. I got to thank my friend John, who also got me Adobe, so thank you, John. Uh, I want to thank Eldritch for um, making my art, my, my logo and whatnot for free. Very nice of them. And uh, I want to thank uh, Sam Mitchell for making me theme music, which is pretty crazy. And of course, my, my, my biggest thank you goes to my mom. A little round of applause for my mom. Thanks, mom. Uh, you feed me and let me stay in the basement. So it's my biggest sponsor <laughs> for sure. <laughs> nice. I'd like to thank all those people too. That's great. That's a good practice. Yeah. Uh, I, I wouldn't be here uh, if it wasn't for the people who helped me out. So, yeah. Well, thank you. Well, thank uh, you, Ben. No, no, it's, it's great. I had a lot of fun. I'm going to turn things off. All right. Whoa. Wow, there's... Um, that's great. I, uh, that, yeah, that did go longer than I expected. And, it always uh, does. It always does. And there's, there's, um, there's so much to talk about.